Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, an incredible story of survival and what comes next. Brad Guy was a happy 22-year-old when his parachute completely failed at 15,000 feet. I knew for a certainty that death was coming and there was no way around it. It was a full, full conviction even then in that moment. Yeah, in our interview, he explains how dark he got in the months after the crash and then how he turned his life around. My main message is you are not your trauma, but you are what you become. It's a fascinating insight into survivor's guilt and the step-by-step process of living with trauma. First, today's headlines with Jan Fran. It's Friday, the 9th of June. Yeah, g'day, Tom. A 35-year fight for justice is over, ending with a nine-year sentence for the manslaughter of the then 27-year-old Scott Johnson at a gay beat in Sydney in 1988. So 52-year-old Scott Philip White will serve a non-parole period of six years behind bars for punching Johnson near the edge of a cliff. Now, the judge wasn't able to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that White had committed a gay hate crime, but it does bring some closure to the Johnson family because this has been a very long-running saga, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Police said for many years it was suicide, but the Johnsons, particularly Scott Johnson's brother, never accepted that. And the case is one of dozens of deaths being examined by an inquiry into suspected gay hate crimes. And interestingly, over the last 24 hours, Jan, text messages that were unearthed in that inquiry have come out and they show a shocking conversation between two senior police officials. Um, These are messages they sent to each other and it shows that they were determined not to, quote, let the Johnsons win and to show them for who they really are. So very concerning. Um, That inquiry will report back in August. Yeah, I don't know if anyone really wins from this case, but you're right, a pretty shocking convo there. And WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has lost his appeal uh, for extradition to the US and could be sent to America immediately. The ruling was announced quietly on Monday and is hitting the news uh, this morning. If he's extradited, he'll face 17 espionage counts. And this comes despite our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese saying enough is enough. And even just two weeks ago, Assange's wife, Stella Assange, was saying they're as close as they'd come to securing his release. Yeah, Stella Assange does still seem optimistic despite this latest development, though. So the saga itself continues. Um, She says that Assange is going to make an urgent renewed application for appeal next week on Tuesday to the British High Court and that she does remain optimistic that he will be freed and that he won't be extradited. So it sounds like this is a glitch, according to Stella Assange, but, you know, he's been in some kind of detention since 2012 and it's been a very long-running saga. So who knows exactly where we're at in the timeline. And the federal opposition is challenging the Albanese government over the latest Brittany Higgins revelation. So the Prime Minister has denied he planned with Brittany Higgins to pressure the coalition over the rape allegations in Parliament House, the allegations that were never proven in court. Um, This follows the reports from the Australians that Brittany Higgins and her partner David Shiraz, along with journalist Lisa Wilkinson and her producer, tried to recruit friendly politicians to pursue their case. So 
In the text messages um, between Shiraz and Higgins, the Australian reported that Shiraz claims Albo gave him his number and offered to fly to Canberra to meet Higgins and that then-Senator Gallagher was really invested. So the coalition have challenged whether this raises a conflict of interest over Miss Higgins' compensation payment, which was decided once these Labor MPs came into power. Mm. Now, the Finance Minister, um, Katie Gallagher, and Tanya Plibersek have both rejected the idea that they were involved. And Anthony Albanese himself said that the first time he met Brittany Higgins was when he did so publicly and when he met her with Scott Morrison. So also suggesting that there were no sort of uh, meetings or conversations going on behind the scenes uh, out of public view. And it is official, the ACT has banned unnecessary and irreversible medical procedures for intersex people. So intersex people, that is the I there in LGBTQI, uh, are born with sex characteristics such as genitals or chromosome patterns that don't necessarily fit male or female norms. I'm doing norms in air quotes, by the way. The bill, what it does is it stops deferrable treatments on intersex people until they're old enough to consent, right? So you can still have emergency medical procedures that have to happen in the moment, but the ones that you can defer are deferrable. And this makes the ACT one of the few places in the world to pass these laws, let alone Australia, And the hope is that it'll happen in the rest of the country as well, Tom. Yeah, in Queensland, the Premier has opened up about a heartbreaking miscarriage. I had it um, in my house. I went to work. I was completely in shock. So Anastasia Palaszczuk has shared this story from many years ago because she says she has a personal interest in improving the clinical guidelines for women who have a miscarriage in Queensland And this came about because of a horrific situation that a woman called Nicole Southwell has had to deal with. She says that she had to sit in an Ipswich hospital waiting room holding, and this is a pretty graphic story, but holding the fetus of her dead baby in a biohazard bag sitting there in the waiting room with sheets around her waist. It's a completely shocking story. I'm not surprised that there's been a review ordered by the state health department um, into what went on there. Even more allegations, including that hospital staff used a phone to light during a procedure uh, that she had to wait for hours, up to eight hours in the hospital before she was seen by anyone. I mean, it just, it does not cut the mustard. And given that one in five women across Australia experience miscarriage during a lifetime, we're talking about a lot of people needing medical care. So uh, for the standard to have allegedly been this at one hospital is just completely unacceptable. Yep, absolutely. We need to get that right. All right, that is it for today's headlines. Jan, we will catch you next week. I'm about to bring you this fascinating interview with Brad Guy. The chances of surviving a 15,000 feet fall are minuscule. The fact Brad Guy can be here on The Briefing telling this story is an absolute miracle of luck. What comes next is also really important for anyone who goes through an acute trauma. His book, Freefall, gives a blow-by-blow of the months after the crash. We learn what survivor's guilt feels like. And then Brad gives us an insight into the step-by-step psychological journey back to a healthy life. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. What did you want to say with this book? I just wanted to shift the narrative on trauma 
I felt like for a very long time, and even still to this day with doing all the publicity with the book, that I was just the parachute guy, the the luckiest guy alive, the guy that survived. And there was never any talk of my recovery and the aftermath. And I just felt like there was so much more to trauma than just this crazy thing that happened to you. And my main message is you are not your trauma, but you are what you become. And I want to change my story to being a survivor to now an advocate, a public speaker, someone that talks about important issues and has a message. I think that is quite often lost when it comes to trauma and we just too much focus on the actual event itself and the crazy hook, the headline, and not about what actually happens to someone afterwards when they have to live with what's happened to them. Yeah, and the word trauma is used a lot more in in our sort of public and probably private conversations these days. So we'll we'll get into more about what what the true meaning of it is and what you have to do on a personal level to grapple with it and then live with it, which is a lot of what your book is about. Let's go to the moment just so we can hear what it was like. So you're skydiving. It's a birthday present. Your family's there. The first parachute fails. Mm-hmm. Take us from there. Yeah, I was expecting a thrust. When we're going through the safety proceeding, I was told that there would be a huge thrust that would slow us down. And even that can cause injury because it's such a velocity shift. But I just started to feel panic. The free fall lasted a little bit longer than I thought it would, as I expected. And there's just scrambling going on behind me. My tandem instructor is throwing arms. He's grabbing things. I can hear him grunting and yelling. And that's when I look up and I see two parachutes, both are tangled with each other. One's an emergency parachute, one's the main parachute. And because it's not really opening up and slowing us down, it actually leaves us shaking violently. And we're shaking so much that I'm nearly falling out of my harness. A shoe comes off. It's just the parachute's attacking the wind. And that's when the panic started to set in for me. Even in that moment, I had accepted that that was the end of my life. I knew for a certainty that death was coming and there was no way around it. It was a full, full conviction, even then in that moment, even though I wasn't fully aware of why it was happening, I knew that I was free falling towards the earth and death was coming. What was that feeling like, accepting that you were about to die? The the first emotion that really came to me was guilt. I felt guilt because I was convinced I'd brought my whole family there to watch me die. I'd kind of seen them in that moment, almost like a flash. It was my three sisters, my brother-in-laws, my niece, my nephews, my mom, my dad, my boyfriend at the time. It was a whole menagerie, the whole guy family. But the guilt and the shame happened so instantly that it was even as I was falling, just thinking what they must be viewing. And fast forward to afterwards, there is that collective trauma that we suffered as a family. And the guilt was the hardest thing to start to untangle. And that's still something that I deal with, knowing how much it was traumatic for them to see. And I was convinced I was dying and they were convinced as well because there was also this big time gap between them seeing me crash and knowing that I was okay. So the guilt, it's often misunderstood by people and I totally get it. I understand that 
it's not my fault, but it's a constant reliving over and over again. And that takes mm. its toll. And it's also the feelings mm. less so of what actually happened. Oh, did he survive? What happened? Ugh. Like I get that all the time. That's why it's about the aftermath. It's about my recovery. It's about how I had to put one foot in front of the other to actually reclaim my life and achieve everything that I have. Because mm. now I have a blessed life. I've done so much, but that doesn't come without hard work and it doesn't come without wounds that can become extremely fresh at the drop of a hat. So mm. I'm just trying my best mm. and trying to show myself some grace. But the the hardest thing mm. amongst the entire journey of survival is that guilt. Survivor's guilt is so strong. It's so complex. And it's the hardest thing to unwire because when you go through a traumatic event, even in the moment, physiologically, your brain and your body are rewiring itself. And it's extremely hard to reset how you view your entire world in order to get to a place where you can at least function like a relatively normal person. And that's basically what the book is about. It starts mm. with the fall and the rest of it is what happened afterwards, which I think is even more of a survival story than the actual event. Yeah, 100%. It's also a lot more within your control potentially than where you happen to to land, which in your case was on the side of a lake mm. on a golf course. So that's the bit where the conversation really lies because that's the bit you can control. So yeah. I'm sensing that it's it's better if we move into that that territory than spend too long on the the incident itself. Um, mm. That's all in the book. People can read that. Miraculously, you survive because you landed on the edge of a lake and then you detail the moment by moment going into hospital and that your back is completely broken. And then before long, we're back at home with you in probably the darkest place you've ever been. When you looked at yourself in the mirror in that moment, it was a fascinating part of the book because on one hand, you were really unhappy with what you saw, that you looked so different and gaunt and not like that person you were before the accident, but that harsh realization was also part of what helped you move forward that you had to accept that you had changed. Yeah, that that was the acceptance that I did die that day. Well, that's the way I saw it. I had to see that there's a life pre-accident and there's a life post-accident. And I really felt like I'd suffered some sort of ego death. I wasn't that person ever. I think I've been able to reclaim the best parts of my old life into the new Brad that I am now. But I remember looking at that mirror and the person looking back at me was a stranger. It was this person in a neck brace and a back brace. My beard was long. I'd lost so much weight and I'm not a skinny person. I was gaunt and I had no color. I hadn't had my hair cut in ages. Like I just wasn't the same person. My eyes were bloodshot. Everything looked different. But in that, there was also an opportunity that Brad's not coming back. I have to push forward and make a new one that's even better than before. And even if I couldn't truly believe it deep down, I had to just pretend. I had to be deluded. Mm. I had to just give it a shot because if I gave myself zero chance, it was never going to happen. But if I mm. convinced myself that maybe there's a chance, then that's Better than zero. It could be 0 0.1, but it could actually get us to where I want to go in life. So I often say that my, my rose tinted glasses broke that day. I was a very positive, naive, bubbly, outgoing person. 
before the accident. And I think I've only recently found him in the past few years. And I can't believe it took that long. And I used to shame myself for my healing taking so long, thinking, oh my God, how is this still so fresh seven, eight, nine years later? And now I'm coming up to 10 years later. And for the first time in a really long time, too long, longer than I'd like to admit, I was literally just walking down the street to work the other day and the book had just come out and I just broke down. I just finally felt Mm. happy. I finally had felt so proud of myself and so accomplished and acknowledged the past 10 years of my life and the hard work I put into myself to be so happy that it just all finally hit me at once that I'm not that person anymore. And that's a good thing because the person that I am now is better than I ever would have been without the accident. Mm. Wow. That is so interesting. So Mm. I feel like we can learn a lot about survivor guilt from your story. And I've never heard someone get into it so deeply as, as you are right now. I think what's so perplexing about it is that on a rational level, your pain, what you went through, the cost to you was actually so much worse than your family. Yet Mm. in those darker moments, you were putting their pain above yours. Mm. Yeah. And it's confusing. And I totally acknowledge that. And that's the question that I get quite often is, how could you feel guilty? You didn't do anything and your family love you no matter what. But I could see their reaction during my recovery and I just felt so, felt so bad. I just instantly went to remorse and they would do anything for me, but they suffered as well. And I've never really heard it reflected back to me as ranking their pain above mine, but I guess that's what I was doing. For me, I just, I felt horrible because I felt like I'd put it on them. And there was collective suffering. My mum had a lot of trauma to mm. deal with and tangle seeing her son mm. basically die that day. And even as it was happening, as the accident was happening, one of my sisters fainted. Another sister was vomiting. There was just pure mayhem going mm. on at the airport while they're watching wow. this happen. And it's burned into their brains forever like me. So feeling the guilt and feeling mm. like a burden, I wish it made more sense, but... That has been the biggest thing to overcome emotionally. So the reason, as you touched on at the start, you've written this book is to help other people learn about processing trauma and tragedy. So what are the key lessons? What what would you like us to to understand that would help any of us listening get through something traumatic like this? For me, what what I wish I knew back then was that this isn't all of me. My reaction to it is completely valid. And the healing process isn't this instant thing with an end goal in sight. Even doing the book, I wrote the book because I thought I was a finished product. I felt ready to tell my story. And evidently, it's still something that's very fresh. And Through doing the book, I realized that healing is complicated and crazy and you're going to fall down and you're going to pick yourself back up. And some days are good, some days are bad, but you just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And there is an absolute guarantee if you keep doing that, that you will feel healed enough to achieve your dreams. And it sounds super cheesy and I totally get that. I'm a cheesy person, Hmm. but there is another version of you that can look back at the past and be thankful that you put all that work into yourself. And practically it takes therapy. It takes rehabilitation. It takes physiotherapy. 
it takes being open about your story in safe spaces to make sure that you can untangle all the very confusing things about trauma. Because like I said, it's a physiological rewiring of your brain and body. And there's a very important book that informed my book. It's called The Body Keeps a Score. And I found that looking at the scientific side of things and the diagnoses that I got actually did make it a little bit easier instead of just being so cerebral and so in my head, I had to put the hard work in. But at the end of the day, healing is complicated and it will be hard, but just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And on the other side is a big, beautiful life where you can take the wisdom from what you went through and help it give you strength for whatever you encounter in the future. That was Brad Guy. And I can highly recommend his book, Freefall. It's an incredible read. I mean, just the accident itself is gripping, but what comes next is a truly fascinating insight into surviving trauma and living an inspiring life. Listener.